this is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's really a privilege to have Lindsay Lloyd, who's the deputy director of the Human Freedom Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Lindsay, thanks for being on. Thank you. So you're here because we're going to be talking about something called the Democracy Project. And boy, oh boy, it's got some facts and some findings that are encouraging and some that are discouraging, and maybe is a way to describe it. But I think it's a very important report. I think it got my attention when I saw it, and I'm really glad, Lindsay, that you're in town and we have a chance to talk about it here. But first, before we do that, would you just tell me a little bit, I know what your background is, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you ended up becoming the deputy director of the Human Freedom Initiative. You didn't start at the George W. Bush Institute. You had a much earlier start in politics. No, yeah, that's right. I've been at the Bush Institute now for about seven years. Uh, oh, wow. Dallas. The Institute was incorporated in 2009, but we opened our doors to the building, the Presidential Library and Museum that's on the campus of SMU in Dallas in 2013. So the building just had its fifth anniversary a few months ago. Prior to that, I spent a long time working at the International Republican Institute, which is a non-governmental institution that was chaired for many years by the late Senator McCain, which does democracy and governance work around the world. There's a counterpart institution, the National Democratic Institute, both of which are actually nonpartisan, but work to develop political parties, train candidates, monitor elections, things like that. So I spent a good chunk of my career working in Central and Eastern Europe after the fall the wall, most specifically in Slovakia, where I was based for about eight years. Oh, my word. So prior to that, you worked for one of my other heroes in politics. You worked for Jack Kemp. I did, yeah. I worked for his ill-fated 1988 presidential campaign. He was a great man. I miss him. Indeed, and had a, had a, I think, a really remarkable view of what party politics should look like and what the Republican Party should look like in particular. Yeah, I miss him, and I miss John McCain a lot. And I think IRI and NDI, these are these institutions, part of the NED family, the National Endowment for Democracy, which was established by President Reagan. It's been supported by all presidents since and by both sides of the aisle in the U.S. Congress for decades. Also has an institution that's affiliated with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce called SIPE and another one called the Solidarity Center that's associated with the AFL-CIO. That's right. So really interesting. So you really come to this work with a lot of experience on democracy. So what was the Democracy Project? At the Bush Center, one of the programs that we we've had since we opened our doors is human freedom, which is democracy and human rights work. And logically enough, that's been mostly focused overseas. We have a program that's been running now for several years on North Korea, North Korean human rights. We have another program that's focused on young leaders in Burma, trying to tell the stories of dissidents and, and nonviolent freedom advocates, things like that. But over the last several years, going back several years now, we also felt that there were increasingly some issues with the health of our democracy at home. And so we launched this project earlier this year together with kind of an unusual coalition of partners. We are working with Freedom House, which is, I, I believe, the sort of oldest and certainly one of the best known NGOs that's working on human rights issues, founded by Eleanor Roosevelt and a man her husband defeated, Wendell Wilkie, back in the 1940s. Really? And with the Penn Biden Center, which is a new institution started by the former vice president at the University of Pennsylvania. And the three of us came together just wanting to kind of look at these issues. How do Americans feel about the health of our democracy? And also, how do they feel about America supporting democracy and human rights work overseas. So that was sort of the genesis for this project. So what were some of the findings? Because some are encouraging and some are not so encouraging. Mm -hmm. So we did, in March and April of this year, we did a series of focus groups. Here in, in the U.S.? In the U.S., in five cities. We engaged a top Republican and a top Democratic pollster to run this project for us. Which, Who did you have? So we had Jeremy Rosner, who has worked for President Clinton and many Democratic candidates, and Whit Ayers. Oh, um, he's great. Yeah, it was most recently when Senator Rubio was seeing Oh, Whit Ayers is a prince of a guy. Yeah. 
He's a great guy. Yeah, both of them. And, you know, again, that's sort of symbolic of what we were trying to do with this project is to sort of get beyond R&D and really look at how these problems are affecting us as a country. So we did this series of focus groups in five cities around the country with 10 different groups, people like small business owners or educators, just to kind of take the temperature a little bit. With focus group research, you hear from people in their own words how they feel about things rather than choosing from a list of, of options. So that gave us some context and helped us draft the poll question. And then at the very end of April, into the first week of May, we fielded a national poll. What were some of the words that stuck with you in those focus groups? The themes that came out over and over were really consistent, whether we were talking to younger, older, white, black, Republican, Democratic men, women. People were very concerned about the tone of politics. So we heard a lot about how do we make our national dialogue better? How do we make it more civil and things like that? We heard concerns about just how polarized we've become, how partisan we've become, a lot of concerns about race and how Mm. that's playing out in politics. And also a theme that came out very strongly was people's concerns about the role of money in politics. So this exercise was to look both at what do you think of the health of our democracy and what do you think about whether the United States should be engaging overseas in democracy activities. Mm -hmm. So the premise was to the extent that Americans feel confident about the health of its own democracy, that would lend itself to us being involved in in trying to help others try and achieve democracy overseas, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. On the issue of democracy support or democracy promotion overseas, it's a little bit out of favor right now. Really? Um, It comes, comes and goes in waves. You know, we saw a real peak in the late 1980s, early 1990s with the fall of the Berlin Wall, with changes that were happening like Tiananmen Square in China. Yeah. You know, a lot was happening in the world then. There was a lot more emphasis on democracy, human rights promotion then. It changes character a little bit in each administration. This was obviously a big priority for my boss, President Bush, who, you know, famously talked about... Uh, in the second inaugural, I was in Bush 43 at USAID, and I was very taken with his second inaugural speech. I can't remember who wrote it or helped him write it. Mike I think Gerson. Gerson who's the columnist at the Post, I was very taken. And so I spent the 2005 and 2006 and 2007 working on those issues at AID, partially because of his speech. I think Madeleine Albright, who's a Democrat, who is the former Secretary of State and chairs the National Democratic Institute, has been so good on these issues. I think Ken Wallach, who has an affiliation here, is the former head of NDI. He's been great on these issues, too. So there have been important Democratic voices on this, important Republican voices on this. My guess is the topic has taken a hit, not only only because of our own democratic politics and the problems that you were just discussing. But I'm guessing, I mean, the Iraq war, I think we took a hit on it. But I also think the bad guys have gotten better at being bad. Right. I mean, I think there were these so-called color revolutions. I'm sure you know what they are. Maybe you could talk about them. But it seems to me that the people in the business talk about waves, democracy waves, and we're on sort of our third or fourth democratization wave, and it's getting harder. And it feels like maybe once every two or three years we get a breakthrough, the Burma or uh, the Gambia or something, right? You know, kind of smaller. The harder nuts to crack are getting harder. It's probably discouraging. I'm assuming all that kind of plays out in the polling. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, we did hear, you know, you raised Iraq, Afghanistan, and in some people's minds, incorrectly, democracy support has been equated with military action. Or regime change. Or regime change, exactly. And Iraq is really an exception to this. If you go way back after World War II, after the collapse of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, the U.S. worked very hard to help construct democratic regimes in those countries. Yeah, in in Japan and Germany, yeah. Exactly, in West Germany and Japan. So that in and of itself is not unusual. But 
the fact is that, you know, for every Iraq or Afghanistan, there are many more countries that are going through a peaceful transition to democracy. You mentioned Burma. Tunisia is another recent good example right. of that, where 2011. A, a dictator has been overthrown and they have started to build a democracy. It doesn't happen overnight. And what we know from many years of experience is that we can influence it for the better. We have know-how. We have programs, projects, institutions like IRI and NDI and others that can go in and help teach the Tunisians or teach the Burmese how to build their own flavor of democracy. The pushback, the backlash that we've gotten from authoritarians like the Chinese, like the Russians, like others, they've gotten smarter. They have their own sort of playbook on how do you prop up regimes that are more authoritarian. We see that happening in places like Hungary and Poland today, where there's been a real retreat from democracy over the last several years. But the poll wanted to look at, is this something that Americans broadly agree with? What we found there was a little surprising, because when other polls have asked people what are the most important issues in foreign policy, democracy tends to rank very low. But when we talk to people about whether this is a worthwhile endeavor, we found very strong support. We found majority support for it. That's of interest to us at the Bush Institute, our partners at Freedom House and Penn Biden, because we all believe that America has an important role to play in this work overseas. So the finding is, is that even though we're discouraged about the health of our own democracy and we're discouraged about sort of the progress that's been made or may have some qualms about certain case studies, if I can put it that way, that when push comes to shove, there's still some basic latent support for these ideas and supporting this overseas, right? Yeah, very much so. So we found 71% said that they favored the U.S. taking an active role. 71%. 71%. Oh, thank the Lord. Yeah. That's now, good. It's not to say it's their top priority, but when no. you present it to them, is this something the United States should be doing? You know, nearly three quarters said yes. We also had an elite subsample. We know that people that aren't thinking about foreign policy every day look to writers, to columnists, experts to sort of inform their views. I on resemble that policy. remark. There you go. <laughs> um, and there it was even stronger. We found eight out of 10, 80 percent of, of the That's so-called sort of the elites. elites. But this is good news because democracy support has taken a hit over the last few years. And it was not executed the same way under President Obama as it was under President Bush or for that matter under President Clinton. So this shows that there's a strong reservoir of support out there. We also talked about how do you talk to people about these issues? We found that there are three arguments that sort of resonated with average Americans about why this work matters. One was a moral argument, just that this is the right thing to do. These are our values. This is what we believe in. There was a prosperity argument that if other countries are democratic, they're more likely to trade with us to buy our goods. And that improves our prosperity. And the third was a security argument, the argument that democracies are typically more peaceful. They don't go to war with each other very frequently. The average person on the street understood all this. It resonated with them. Yeah, exactly. What was that quote by William F. Buckley? Like, I'd rather be governed by the first 100 names in the Boston telephone book than the faculty at Harvard College. So I think an educated citizenry, if they're educated and are aware of what the issues are, thank God the American people have a lot of common sense. So that's very encouraging still. That's Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, it is. It is. What were you discouraged by? So I think on the domestic front, none of this is particularly surprising, but it is a concern. Most Americans right now think our democracy is weak. They think it's getting weaker. Kind of the opening question for this poll is talking about how important is it to you personally to live in a democracy? And the answer there is generally good. We had 84% said, you know, on a scale out of 1 to 10, it's a 6 or better for them personally to live in a democracy. What was of concern, though, is that when you start looking at certain demographic subgroups, younger people, for example, they were much 
less bought in, much less enthusiastic. Only about a third of people that were 18 to 35 said it was absolutely important for them to live in a democracy. That's horrible. So we need to do some work on things like civic education and civic engagement to make sure that more people, you know, sort of understand the system, understand how it works, what their role is in it. It's not just something they receive, but it's something they have to participate in. You know, this is that about civics? Is that about do we need to kind of upgrade our civics? I'm involved with something in my personal capacity, which is called Constituting America, Mm -hmm. which Ed Gillespie's spouse, Kathy Gillespie, and a woman named Janine Turner. It's been a private initiative. My wife and I have supported it for a number of years. But it's been about trying to find creative ways to engage young people in their country and civics. So, I mean, is that what we should be thinking about, civics? Yeah, that's part of the solution, civic education, civic engagement. There's some great programs that are out there. There's some states like Illinois and Florida that are doing some innovative things to try and make sure their kids are learning more about this. It's not just a schools-based problem, though, or it's not just a schools-based solution. You know, we place a lot of demands on our K-12 through schools to, you know, we, STEM education is a big priority. Other things are a big priority. But clearly, there needs to be a role for civics here. Some people may remember the old Schoolhouse Rock videos yes. that used to be on ABC. Well, those were wonderful. Terrific initiative. And, you know, kids learned what, you know, how a bill becomes bill a law. Bill on a hill. Exactly. And... exactly. But we found, you know, very strong support. 85% of Americans agree that we need to do more on civic education. And in our view at the Bush Center, it's not just K through 12. I had the opportunity to talk to college students on four campuses this fall, just before the elections, about their interest in the elections. Most of them were first-time voters. And a lot of them were saying, you know, look, we're fired up, but these are really kids. They're at good schools. They're getting a good education. But not all of our peers are really even aware of why it's important to vote or how you vote or any of those sort of things. So we think there's also a need to be talking to very young voters or first-time voters, 18 to 25s, you know, making voting a habit that lasts for a lifetime. We found that these young people were very engaged. They discussed political issues on social media and with their friends. Many of them had volunteered for candidates or causes. Many of them into you know marches or contacting elected officials. So all signs of you know important civic activity beyond voting. We did see an uptick in young people voting this fall. It was not enormous, but we went from about 21 percent turnout in uh, 2014 to 31 percent mm. turnout according to Tufts University study. So I mean that's good, but but clearly you've got two thirds of people in that. There's sort of, more millennials today than baby boomers that's right. as, that's as of right. today that yeah. just happened recently. Yeah, so that's now the biggest demographic in the generation. United United States. Yeah, exactly. That's only going to increase. Young people we have been talking to are interested in these issues, but there are different ways that you have to engage with them. They consume information differently. They're not necessarily reading the New York Times or the Washington Post, certainly not on paper. You know, they're getting news from social media. They're getting news through different ways. And so politicians, people that are interested in issues need to learn how to communicate with them, sort of meet them where they are. They're interested in different issues. They have a different intensity on different issues, and they have different assumptions about what America American society should look like than older generations. And, you know, all that is perfectly valid, but we just need to find ways to engage with them. Got it. Okay. I mean, you've been in the democracy promotion business in your prior life. Are you optimistic about the future of democracy in the world? Yeah, I, I am. We're in a, a down cycle right now, clearly. We need to be smarter about how we deal with these issues. You know, the Russians, the Chinese, others have become very savvy about how they can influence people's opinions in the media, in some cases through tinkering or tampering with election systems, things like that. We need to just do a better job of it. We know how to do it. We have tools that we've used for many years, old tools like the Voice of America and others that still have enormous 
enormous impact in countries where there isn't open media. We, we know the sort of the techniques that are needed, how to help build a culture of democracy. So I think long term, yes. Short term, it's kind of a gloomy picture out there. We're seeing a, a receding, a backsliding that's going on right now. But we can push back on that. I mean, President Bush loves to talk about how every human heart at core wants to be free. True. And it doesn't matter if you're living in, in Kansas or you're living in Kazakhstan. You know, those same instincts to be able to worship as you please. Amen. You know, travel, work, do, study, you know, speak. That's universal. And we need to get better and smarter and, and work harder at helping to spread those values. Could you just talk a minute about Russia and China and sort of the kinds of stuff they're doing and how do we counter that stuff? Because I think the folks who do this for a living on a day-to-day basis will say like the Russians in particular have gotten pretty wily. You spent a lot of time in Central and Eastern Europe. So do you have a view about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, first of all, I'd point to some good work that's being done by the German Marshall Fund. There's a group Mm. there called the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Hmm. Fascinating website. Who's who's leading that? Jamie Fly. Oh, he's my buddy. He's great. Jamie used to work for Senator Rubio and then a woman named Laura Rosenberger. You know, I ought to have them come on and do a podcast with them. Laura served President Obama in several positions. So you've got a, you know, a, uh, an R savvy and a D. Republican, savvy Democrat working together. On Jamie this. Fly is just one of the important talents in the Republican Party for foreign policy. He's just a very talented guy and a great guy. Yeah. They have a dashboard on their website. I've met her too, and yeah. she's very impressive. That tracks it in real time that these are the topics that are trending on Twitter. These are the Russian accounts that are propping them up. This is what Russia is trying to push out. And it's not just political. They found, and others have found, that, you know, the Russians are looking for issues where Americans have differences. So when there are incidents of racial violence in the U.S. or, you know, other things like that, they will use that as a wedge. Exactly. Exactly. To sort of sow doubt, to make people sort of question the system, question whether the country is working well. So it's very sophisticated. Part of the part of the battle is awareness. What a cynical mindset. Yeah. Tearing it down. And these are, you know, these are tactics that, you know, the Soviets have done it for for years and they've just gotten more sophisticated, better tools and so forth. How about the Chinese? What are they doing? So it's less clear. There hasn't been as much attention paid to China. But they just, they control the, like, if you want to go online, there's like incredible censorship. And can you use Google there? Not at the moment. Google is having some talks with China about trying to have a sort of Chinese version of Google. Essentially, we're getting to a point where there are two internets. There's China and there's the rest of us. And as countries are able to sort of wall off their population from information, we lose something very, very important. Could you imagine democracy coming to China? Yeah, I think ultimately. I mean, again, you know. It's not going to look like Switzerland Tomorrow. No, and that's that's okay though. You know, a Chinese democracy. I mean, we have a thriving one on Taiwan. Oh, praise the Lord! I love Taiwan. Four times the GNP per capita of mainland China. They have religious freedom, multi-party democracy. They've had changes in government. I've been there three times. I can't get enough of Taiwan. What a great place. Yeah, and, and they're getting squeezed. They're getting squeezed hard. But there's nothing un-Chinese about democracy. There's nothing that says that a democracy can't work in China because it does work in Taiwan. And it works in Indonesia. South Korea. I worry we're in South Korea. Bangladesh kind of has got a democracy. Bangladesh is a democratic country with a lot of problems. Very poor country, but generally democratic. Nepal, so, kind of, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Mongolia is a democracy. Mongolia is a thriving democracy. So, I mean, yeah. so it's not like one can say, okay, it's inherent to whatever you want to call it, Asian yeah. culture or no. Even Chinese culture. It's not, that's not true. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, the theory was always that as people got to a certain level of wealth, they would demand democracy. That hasn't always this happened. This has been very frustrating and very disappointing yep. because we've spent 45 years putting the love on the Chinese, giving them a lot of stuff. The Economist, they had a cover story maybe like six or nine months ago, basically saying like, this hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe I'm putting words in their mouth and maybe I'm misparaphrasing it, but that's how I read it. Even it's been a radical change in Washington the last 24 months and sort of on how we think about China. But I think 
One of them is, is we've just kind of gotten tired. So the level of censorship, the fact that she has made himself dictator for life or something, I think there's a lot more people watching gotten tired of their act. Mm -hmm. There are issues in China that could help bring about change. One is corruption. Environment. Environment is another one. Knocking down all those historical buildings. Yep. There are a lot of people who are wax all poetic about how awesome their infrastructure is. They're like, hey, I'm going to knock down your historic family house so, you know, just suck it up. That's basically what they do. If you have an authoritarian regime, you can have all sorts of quickie infrastructure tomorrow. China's increased economic freedom a great deal over the last, say, 30, 40 years. But, you know, if, if there's corruption in the society, which there is. It if, sure if is. Being, you know, asked for bribes and payoffs oh, and things yeah. like that. If your family business is threatened because they're building a new metro line. Yeah, or a new, so sorry. So that ultimately is going to create a seed for democracy. Religious freedom is another one where there has been an increase. Oh, it's terrible. It's tolerated, but it's not where it should be. No, it's terrible. I don't like it at all. And I have been concerned about sort of the deal that was cut. That's terrible. I don't, I think it's not good. I, I don't like it. Yeah, and you know another thing you you think about as Chinese are becoming more wealthy, they're traveling more, they're coming to Europe, they're coming to the United States, they're soaking it up. You know, you see so many millions all those of Chinese students. students. Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, I think all of that is going to help Chinese culture evolve. It's not going to happen overnight, as you said, but it's certainly possible that over time China becomes a much more democratic society. How about in the Arab world, Iran? They're not the Arab world, but how about Iran? We're going to have democracy in Iran anytime soon. Yeah. Well, they tried a few years ago. You remember the Green Revolution? Yeah. You know, Iran. You see everyone. In a while, little little puffs that come out, little puffs of smoke as yeah. as as things are heating up. It's tough though. You know, the mullahs uh, continue to have very strong control over that society. We know that the desire is there because we saw it in this green yeah. revolution, this aborted green revolution a few years ago. Even you know, Iraq, which is so criticized next door, they've got a functioning democracy. Has a functioning democracy. Now, yeah. because it's so touchy in this country that people don't want to talk about it. And if you say it's a successful democracy, then therefore you're sort of signing on to 2003 onwards policy. So in essence, there's like a media blackout about Iraq and any kind of success there because that would therefore could have justify the war. That's my view. But it's quite important to note, I agree with you, that they have a largely functioning democracy. Some thug guy who killed a lot of Americans got 12 seats or something. And so one of the dilemmas we've got is, is that thug guy, whatever his name is, is now got one of the ministries as part of a coalition government. I think, you know, you probably know what I'm talking about. But what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, so I think that's a question is is what happens when electorates who are actually given the vote vote for people we don't necessarily like is a, is a real dilemma. But I'd like to think that over time, he didn't get 51%. He got whatever it was. He didn't have a controlling stake of the coalition government. But but it's a real government. Iraq's a real government. That's a Shia majority country, right? That's a democracy. Even if people don't want to recognize it, it's a functioning yeah, democracy. Not a, not a perfect one by and with many problems. Sure. But, you know, they're making their way. They're making their way. Afghanistan's kind of sort of a democracy. Yeah. They've had some elections. It's been messy. They had non-presidential elections sometime in October, I guess. They haven't released the results. This is in mid-December. And I guess they have presidential elections next year there. And they've done this three or four times. This isn't like their first rodeo doing yeah. this. No. So it's, you know, democracies having Tunisia's Tunisia's kind of, a great case. That's a great case. They've got lots of problems. But, you know, what are they now? Eight years on, they are still making Praise progress. Praise the Lord. They're still making progress. Praise the Lord. One of the things that's key, I think you, you mentioned Afghanistan, the role of women there has been dramatically expanded, dramatically oh changed. There's Tunisia, something like how many millions of girls are in school right, right. now? Is it, I don't know if it's to, 5 million, yeah. out of it's 6 million. Yeah. It was close to zero exactly. under the Taliban. Exactly. That's right. You know, we saw the desire for democracy is very real in the Arab world in, in places like Egypt and Libya and Syria. What we've also seen is that the autocrats are still stronger in many cases. But, you know, I think that changes over time. These countries have an enormous young population. 
population. They have economies that don't function well and can't provide the jobs that these people need. So the pressure isn't going away. And, you know, one of the best escape valves, you know, to release that pressure is to allow people to express their political opinions freely. So it sounds to me like we still got some work to do. There's been a lot of progress. If you look at those Freedom House numbers, they have the gold standard in terms of measuring the level of freedom in the world. And they have sort of this really important analytical piece they've been doing for a very long time. But if you go back to, say, 1980, you move flash forward almost 40 years, it's a much freer world. I mean, what I say is this isn't your grandparents' developing world. It's richer. It's freer. It's more capable. It's got a lot more agency. And then the other corollary to that is if we don't meet their hopes and expectations, they'll take their business to the Chinese. I do think it's a freer world. We're dealing with sort of the harder nuts to crack at this point. I mean, we're not talking almost at all about Latin America except for a couple of glaring, miserable exceptions. I'll list them Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua for the most part. But even in, if you look at Asia, there's been an incredible amount of progress, and even in the Middle East. And Africa as well, yeah. So, oh, Africa, yeah. There's like 54 sub-Saharan African countries. I think there yeah. are like 16 fully-fledged democracies. That's, right. That's totally going in the right direction. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the Freedom House does their Freedom of the World yeah. report every February, and yeah. it's a report card, basically. For every country, there are scores that are backed up by some, some really serious analysis of what's happening in the media, what's happening in, in the judicial system, all these different issues yeah. that, that make up what constitutes a free society. And there have been some, some disturbing trends in established democracies where, where things are going in the wrong direction. There are also a lot of very quiet and, and not generally well-reported stories about where democracy is taking hold and growing and flourishing, especially in the developing world. So I think we've learned that democracy is not a one-way street. You don't get on and, and just, you it's just go on a linear. No. It, it requires tender, loving care. Even it requires here. investment. Exactly. And Condi Rice had that fabulous book. I'm sure you've read it. I did a book review of it in Foreign Policy a couple of years ago. And the cover is civil rights marches in the early 1960s. And the case studies are 15 case studies. And the first one is the United States in the 1960s. So yeah. we had some unfinished business in we this country. Yeah, we, we still got some unfinished business. We do. and But the good thing is we have a system that allows us to address those issues. I mean, if people are engaged, if legislators and elected officials listen, you know, we have all the tools at our disposal, but it really requires that people speak up and they get active, they vote, and they participate in other ways. Okay, Lindsay, thanks for coming on. This was great. My pleasure. Glad okay. to be here. Thank you. Thanks.